This is the Capness HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Kavnis. The Kavnis HR Podcast is brought to you by SM Diversity. SM Diversity is a full-service staffing and recruiting agency. SM Diversity provides end-to-end talent acquisition programs, permanent placement, contractor hiring, routine hourly recruiting, and a recruitment media team. SM Diversity also provides diversity and inclusion consultants to design, develop, implement DNI frameworks for organizations, both large and small. Hello, and welcome to Kevin's HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kavanis. Our guest today is Victor Pihotko. Victor, are you ready to be great today? Yeah, super excited. Victor is a business advisor within the Office of Translational Initiatives and Program Innovations, OTIPI, which supports the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, and administers a 40 million small business program. Victor is co-founder of two startups and previously held management positions at ABL, RHT Consulting, and Ares Global. Victor graduated from the University of Maryland with a degree in microbiology and an MBA in interdisciplinary studies from John Hopkins Carey Business School. Victor, thank you very much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jason, so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about with you and hopefully say something valuable to your listeners. Victor, can you quickly explain what is OTIPI and NIDA and what what they actually do? Yeah, so it, uh, as you said, it's it's a mouthful, Office of Translational Initiatives and Program Innovations. So it's a, it's an amazing office, and we report directly to the to our director of the institute, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And NIDA is one of the many institutes at NIH, National Institute of Health. So we're gonna, so most we heard of National Cancer Institute or Heart, Lung, and Blood. Well, we're one of the 27 institutes within the NIH. And the primary focus of NIDA is um, to do amazing basic research and then um, translate those discoveries into products versus to make an impact on public health. Now, our office, OTB, typically focuses on programs that help bring some of those products and services to the market and make an impact on public health. And so, for example, one of the programs that we manage is called the Small Business Program, uh, which administers almost $40 million worth of grants and contracts uh, to startups um, and small businesses that are looking to make an impact on the opioid use disorder, the opioid epidemic, and really anything substance use disorder associated. Victor, so this is, is this a government program or this is private nonprofit? Yeah, yeah so this is a government program. So within um, Health and Human Services, uh, most folks don't know about these amazing programs. So for NIH, there's almost a billion dollars worth of uh, non-dilute capital funding or grants or contracts through this mechanism. So how do companies and startups find out about this program? Do you, do you market this program out or is it like more than mouth? How do people find out about this great program? So to be honest, it's a combination of all those things. So we have, so NIH has a yearly conference that everyone is invited to participate in. Um, and attend to find out more. There's a bunch of different websites, including NHSBAR website. Um, our institute has a, a dedicated small business website. You can just Google NIDA SBAR 
and should be the first thing that pops up. Um, so we attend conferences that range from um, therapeutics all the way to health IT uh, and diagnostic and devices because we really invest in everything that you can probably imagine that's related to commercialization within the SUD space. So large conferences like Bio, CNS, uh, we're there making sure that people know about us um, and know about the services that they, they can have access to. When a, when a startup applies to this program, what in their application makes you say yes and what makes you say no for them? Oh, that's a good, it's a good question. So there has to be a very clear value proposition. And the way the program is kind of broken up is this. An age defines it as three phases. Phase one is um, essentially just a really good idea or demonstration of feasibility of that MVP, minimum viable product that you're developing. Uh, and for those, what we like to see that the, there's a very clear problem that the product that is being proposed addresses that problem. But most importantly, that there's some kind of purchaser. A lot of the times, businesses um, which don't do very well within the review process or we don't pick up for funding, they create something and they say there's a really, really big need and I've been working on this product for the last 10 years. But they very quickly realize that after they've built it, there's no market for it. And I would say that's one of the kind of biggest reasons why a lot of startups fail. Uh, but really for us, it just has to have a very good and clear value proposition. So clear problem, and a very clear way, of, clear way of solving that problem. What percentage of applicants get accepted? Depends whether it's phase one, phase two, or a fast track mechanism. And um, the first two are kind of self-explanatory. Fast track is when we combine phase one and phase two into one single application. And um, application success rates um, are actually all of this is um, available public um, through an awesome report um, database called NIH Reporter. And I would say application success rates um, range between 15 and 25%, depending on when you submit the application and what fiscal year it is and how much money we get. Do you, do you all accept applications from all over the world or just United States companies? Yeah, so there's a couple of limita limitations to the program. So uh, it, companies do have to be U.S. majority uh, U.S. Um, owned, uh, and again, that's what there's so, such huge positive support from from um, both sides of the aisle for the program because a it creates jobs, uh, it creates an opportunity for us to translate on all of these discoveries that um, NIH funds. Uh, so there's huge support, but the I, I guess few requirements include that the company has to be U.S. Um, majority, and that can be either through, for example, the founders have majority stake in the company and they're U.S. citizens. Companies can even have angel or VC backing uh, as long as some of the kind of requirements are met, and NH does a nice job outlining what those requirements are. The other requirement is that whoever is getting the grant, what we call this the principal investigator, that they are uh, majority employed, employed by the small business. And then the work does have to be done in the U.S. So you can't set up a virtual company and then outsource everything you know, overseas. So if the work can be done in the U.S., it has to be done in the U.S. So cost is not a good enough reason to outsource something. And those are pretty much the three primary kind of inclusion criteria for us to accept an, an application for a small business to be eligible to participate in the program. And the program's in the D.C. area, correct? So all over the country. So um, um, NIH is primarily in the D.C. area, in, the, in uh, Rockville, uh, Bethesda, in Maryland. But we have applicants from literally all over the country, whether it's 
you know, out of San Francisco, New York, Boston, uh, any of the biotech hubs, uh, but also, you know, South Dakota, North Dakota, you think of a state, uh, we've probably funded a couple of companies there. And the company can, can stay where they're at, right? They don't have to move to D.C. or Maryland, right? Whatever they're at, they can keep on working there. Oh, absolutely. So, and a lot of states actually have a lot of amazing resources in order to encourage startups from um, kind of staying within the states. And for example, again, if you just Google NIDA SBAR, you'll, uh, one, of, one of the resources on our website, it's, it's called NIDA Business Resources. And we've compiled the list um, of state accelerators, incubators, um, state initiatives, because individual states have a lot of awesome programs, whether they're matching funds for the grants that federal government gives, uh, or they have various kind contracts for people to actually help write the grants, business mentors, and just go to our website, check out business resources, and you can see all of those amazing, uh, amazing resources that states provide. So let's say there's a company in, in we'll say, North Dakota. Do they have like do like monthly checkups with you? Do they have to like refer to meetings? Do y'all ever go to the companies and visit them on site? How, how do they? How's that work? Yeah. So again, so usually we just recommend that they reach out to us. Again, a company can simply just come in and submit an application. They don't have to talk to us uh, if um, they don't. They choose not to. We always encourage that they do. After we have a kind of introduction discussion, we outline the expectations in regards to the application process. We talk about timelines, we talk about funding, uh, but most importantly, we talk about the science and the specific aims that they're proposing to accomplish within their application. And then after that discussion, we try to provide as much guidance as we can during the, the application process. And once the application has been submitted, our program officers do a really good job along with grants management, trying to make sure that uh, companies know kind of where they are within the review and the funding process that takes place over the course of roughly about six months. So from when you submit an application, and we usually have three dates, September, January, and April 5th, it's still about six to eight months from submission to uh, when the company is awarded the grant and they can draw down the funds for the work. I had some time with corporations helped you with your startup businesses and what you're doing now. So that's a great question. So I think, A, understanding how larger companies make acquisition decisions and really, that all goes down to understanding the value proposition and the core customer as well as the purchaser. Uh, again, I think a lot of the times companies make the mistake of building something while not understanding the complexity of the ecosystem, especially our healthcare ecosystem. There's so many players uh, that you have to be considered. And again, for example, a health IT company can develop something. They can sell it to a state or a federal government. They can sell it, sell it directly to Consumer, or they can try to you know, go to enterprise or through insurance and follow, for example, uh, you know, the FDA approval process to get reimbursement codes from CMS. So this healthcare ecosystem is extremely complex to kind of seeing and understanding how companies make purchasing decisions. So that's been extremely helpful, uh, but also understanding all the facets that go into product development. Folks that you know, work within a pharmaceutical company the understand things like a target product profile and how important it is to have a good regulatory strategy early on in the process in order to have a successful exit. So a lot of small businesses uh, either don't have those expertise or you know, should bring those expertise as early as possible. But understanding that full product development process has also been extremely helpful 
uh, and helping guide companies. Victor, how has your science background helped you out with, with your startups? So most of my um, startups were science focused. I was kind of a pretty big geek. I started working in a lab when I was 16, so still in high school. So, and I got exposed to some amazing virology and microbiology research that was being done at the National Institute of Health. So within allergies and infectious disease. And I had a phenomenal, crazy Russian boss who was extremely knowledgeable and we just did some awesome science and on things like Norwalk virus and looked at various preclinical and animal models. So I, I guess no matter what the project is, there's always going to be a, a component of science behind it. Uh, so being able to understand the technology is extremely valuable. So it's not just about being able to, you know, spit out some business jargon. It's actually understanding the technology that's being proposed. And again, because we fund so many different types of technologies, whether it's diagnostics, therapeutics, biologics, um, understanding the core principle behind the technology is extremely important. Because then we can actually give some valuable advice when we're talking companies uh and not just some jargon so it sounds like you found your passion and purpose in life pretty early on yeah i, I i'll be honest I, I think i have a dream job in regards to what i'm doing um with nida i get to be a business advisor i get to look at hundreds of companies every single year and literally my job is to try to help as many of these companies come into the program or help them launch their products and services and whether it's connecting them to the right resources or, or whether it's just honestly having an hour meeting and having a kind of business strategy discuss, discussion session. It's pretty amazing. And, and again, it's pretty awesome to see really breakthrough technologies that most people aren't even aware of, see them so early on. But I think the most exciting kind of part for me happened, and uh, I've been in this role for about three years now, is to actually see the companies that we've pivoted into the space and I'll be honest, substance use disorder historically, and even now, has a pretty large stigma associated with it. Um, and in terms of VC investment, there's been very little, especially if you look at biologics and therapeutics. The bio, for example, recently released a nice analysis looking at the VC interest in pain and addiction drug discovery. And they compared it to other indications. And you know, it's an XY graph. And you have cancer, you know, billions upon billions of dollars of investment all the way in the top left corner. Uh, and then for addiction, you barely see the amount of funding from the VC community. I mean, it, that dot is practically on the x-axis. But because of the Affordable Care Act, because of the opiate epidemic, there's been this kind of huge shift in terms of the market opportunities. Again, you have uh, over 60,000 people died last year because of the opiate epidemic. Uh, you have over 2 million Americans that have some kind of opiate use disorder. You expand that to alcohol, smoking. A lot of those mechanisms are so similar. So a lot of the same drugs that may work for one type of substance, substance or one type of indication, we can clearly pivot to another. And there's huge uh, market opportunity there. And then at the same time, we're also starting to see this huge shift in digital therapeutics and the amount of money that's being invested by the VC community in that space is just phenomenal. And companies like Care Therapeutics, Trigger Health, WeBot, um, all of those kind of come to mind. And even in the last year, you're, you're really starting to see more and more interest in natural language processing, AI. 
So it's an amazing time to be kind of part of this institute, this office that's literally just trying to make an impact on on the opiate epidemic and within the substance use disorder. Victor, Nick, can you talk about a time you were a success in the past? What you learned from the success and what all this can learn from this? Yeah, so there's... I think I've been fortunate through my career, whether working at various biotechs or um, just having an opportunity to be a business advisor to NIDA. But one of my, I would say, fairly recent successes was when I was at 1776 Demo Day, and it's a really awesome accelerator across the country, and actually across the globe. And a few years ago, when they were still really early, they had the last Demo Day in D.C. So I got to see some of the best pitches from startups from across the country. And one of the startups was called Open Beds, and they were actually out of Johns Hopkins here um, in Baltimore, so pretty local to me. And um, the founder, um, Dr. Nishira Watt, um, she was trying to solve a problem that she was seeing as an emergency physician on a daily basis, and that's identifying an open bed for her patient. And literally, she was spending hours and hours on the phone rather than trying to than being a doctor, try to find an open bed and triage the patient appropriately. Um, so after the pitch, um, we approached Nishi and asked, well, you know, we think the technology is really cool. We'd love for you to kind of pivot into the use disorder space because right now there's over 14,000 rehab facilities. One of the biggest problems if, if you're a patient with substance use disorder is that you're, you're simply trying to find an open bed that your insurance company will provide. And you don't know if you need to wait a week or if you need to wait three months in order to get into that facility. So having a, a really good software solution, you know, it was just very timely. So I got, I was able to get to work with Nishi and her team. They put in an awesome uh, fast track application to us. And then they, we eventually funded the company. There were some headaches along the way, I'll be honest. But now they, they launched in Indiana last year and now they're launching um, across the U.S into multiple states uh, and now patients literally thousands of patients are being impacted on a daily level because of conversation because of you know one pitch at a single demo day that's a great story victor next talk about a time you failed in the past what you learned from this failure and what we can learn from this so i'll uh, again i'll reference nishi so the first time she actually applied with her application she ended up with what's called being non-discussed. So, and for us, the way it works is uh, NH gets so many applications, there's not enough resources to uh, be able to review all of them. So within a review study section, what happens is that kind of uh, after preliminary scores are submitted by reviewers, which are, who are peers from the community, from industry and academia, uh, 50% of the applications off the bat do not get discussed, which means that we cannot fund them. And for a couple of reasons, open beds, their application was not discussed, which means we could not fund them. And, you know, we worked with the team for, for months to put together this awesome application. And, you know, after some heavy conversations, we kind of were able to come to the decision, okay, let's resubmit the application, uh, you know, and let's add additional team members who can provide additional help on the project. And the application ended up getting reviewed the next submission round, got a really good score, uh, and we ended up funding the company. So through that failure, I mean, uh, again, it's not worth doing if it's too easy. Open Beds was able to, you know, secure over 
I'm going to say $1.7 million of, fun, of non-dilute equity capital from us. Victor, talk about someone who's helped you in the past and how they helped you. So personally, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of mentors through my career. And, and honestly, at every single organization that I've kind of gone through the way, uh, I, I think help is always there. And, and uh, I do believe that most people are extremely good and extre- extremely helpful. And, and even in New York, and both of us were uh, attended the Investor Summit. And one of my goals for the summit was to connect with as many um, VCs as possible and in order to kind of discuss portfolios, companies that they were seeing, and really get their help in order to identify companies that were trying to make an impact in this space, but maybe were either too early or still had risk to their project. Because for us, those are the types of companies that uh, kind of hit our sweet spot of for us to get funding to. And one of the partners of Activate Venture Partners, uh, Gian Kapoor, again, no, no connections to, to this to Gian whatsoever in the past. He took a meeting. We ended up having a phenomenal discussion. And over the last two months, the companies that he's seen or other VCs uh, in New York see and are making recommendations to him. And now we're working with five, six different companies. They're just phenomenal. So recently, he and other folks at Borealis Ventures, for example, is just a great community and people really wanting to make um, a difference in this space. Um, so I'm really appreciative of, of everyone that, that kind of has an open mind uh, to a you know have that initial discussion, have that meeting, collaborate. Yes, I had a great experience at Summit as well. It was, it was a very great investment of time for me. I had a, had a great, great experience. Met a lot of great people. Victor, I don't see any of a book you recommend for our listeners. So one of my favorite, I would say, business business books. I mean, a lot of books that I love. That I love reading fiction. But I guess business books that um, is that I recommend is The Goal. So Ilian Goldrat. So and um, it's uh, the premise. Is, uh, it's fiction, but it reads like nonfiction. But the premise is the main character who is running a manufacturing plant, uh, and he's struggling. He's struggling on a personal level. He's struggling career. The the facility is failing. You know, revenue is down, um, and he gets placed into kind of the CEO role um, running the facility. And he has to turn it around. And through some guidance of, of, a, of a mentor, who he identifies early on in the book kind of like uh, almost like Yoda advising him on like, oh, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? But one of the key takeaways from the book um, is that you have to identify the bottleneck, whether it's a manufacturing plant, but the bottleneck uh, in, in any situation. You can really apply this really well to startup because, and again, from personal experience, when you're, when you're running your own company, there's a million things that you need to do, right? I mean, and you can, spend hours upon hours on you know, your accounting systems. You can spend lots of hours on your website and on marketing and advertising. Spend hours you know, talking to your sales. But the biggest takeaway is you've got to understand the bottleneck. right? And again, you can get rid of the bottleneck. Everything else is going to follow. And that's how you make the most progress as a company, especially when you're a startup and especially when everyone within that's part of your team uh, is trying to do 10,000 things at once. You got to be able to understand what are the critical milestones that we got to hit and where do we 
put the most amount of resources, the few resources that we have, especially as startups, in order to push the company as far as possible. Victor, can you, can you provide your social media links for both yourself and OTFPI and, and, and IDA for our listeners? So they can yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so on LinkedIn, if so, just take a look at my name. So Victor, last name Prihotsko, you probably can't spell that uh, very easily. But um, if you just Google NIDA and then S-B-I-R or NIDA Small Business Program, we should be the first link that pops up um, under the contact section. Uh, you can find our office, our contact information. Uh, and if you have a business idea that you want to discuss, especially within the substance use disorder, you know, I'd love to schedule a meeting with you and um, hopefully help. And for listeners, we'll have the links to his book recommendations and the social media and our show notes. And you can find our show notes at www.cabinetshrblog.com. Victor, we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you provide us any last-minute words of wisdom or advice on any, any subject you'd like to talk about? Yes, I would say got to take risk, but, but take strategic risk. And again, you know, if you're working um, at a good job now, you're not happy, or maybe you have a passion, start a startup or start a side hustle. Do it strategically. You know, do it on your own time. Do reset the project as much as possible before you jump in. But most importantly, if you don't take risk, then you won't have that, you know, uh, a reward. You can, you know, certainly you know, provide for your family and you know, if you work hard, but in order to become, I don't know, that millionaire, or maybe more importantly, in order to make the greatest impact, you got to take risk as an individual. So don't be afraid of risk. Don't let fear guide your decision, especially as a startup. There's going to be so many things that you as a founder that you simply won't know. There's just too much things from a legal perspective, from an advertising marketing perspective, from a client's perspective. A, you'll figure those things out in your own. But B, make sure that you pull the right teams into the company early on in the process. So we talked about kind of the number one reason why startups fail, and that's creating a product that nobody really wants. The number two is actually the team composition of that startup. So be mindful of the people that you surround yourself. And if you can't change the people around you, change the people around you. Uh, because if they're not going to have passion uh, for the vision that you you as a founder have, you guys aren't on the same page, it's just not going to end well. And I would say the last thing is eliminate those bottlenecks, focus on the bottlenecks, but at the same time, have fun. Uh, and uh, because that's when you really kind of operate at 100%, 100% when you're having fun, when the work that you're doing doesn't feel like a job. You bring up a great point, Victor. I mean, I think a lot of startups, they, they start up by hiring all their best friends, you know. So maybe your best friends are good, you know, your best friend for a few years, but maybe he's not the best person to develop your product, you know? Absolutely. And again, just because, you know, let's say Jim wants to start a company with you. Well, what's Jim's skill set? Right. Again, you have to bring in the right people. Uh, and it's really good to have multiple, you know, people making that decision. Uh, but you got to have a nice, good, diverse team. Because otherwise, you'll either have too much group think. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you'll fall flat, flat on your face, or you'll just have a bunch of people that are capable of doing the same job. But in reality, there's a lot of jobs that need to be fulfilled, even by a startup. Exactly. Victor, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're doing a lot of great work for the world. So thank you for your time. Yep, Jason. Thanks so much. So listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Kavnis HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit KavnisHR.com or connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook at Kavnis HR. Thanks again, and be great every day.